man. Hey, Rudy, how are you? Hey, I'm doing really well. Took me a while to get this anchor thing figured out here. Yeah, once you get it downloaded, it you know works pretty good there. Um, so, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? How was the work week? It was a busy day. Uh, got home, uh, tried to shovel some food in down the mouth real quick and uh, get ready to do this recording. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for coming on today. Um, I want to uh, congratulate you on your performance at uh, the 1 million BC shoot this uh, past weekend. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a uh, been about two years since I had been to the bc shoot and i think it's going to become a a regular event for me absolutely yeah i mean last year with covid um them canceling it was uh i mean i I think that tournament's been going on for well over 30 years so it's kind of a bummer to not have it last year you know for sure i just remember looking at some of these dots and just being like man it's it seems like so long since i've shot at these these uh these dinosaurs but it really hasn't been all that long no it hasn't but it feels like forever. Yeah. Um, now you've been going to the BC shoot a long time, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. I've been shooting at the BC shoot, BC shoot in terms of freestyle for probably the last six years. Obviously missing the last year before that, but I've been shooting freestyle limited, which is you know all the all the all the fancy stuff except no release prior to that. Just shooting with your fingers, pretty much. Yeah. Awesome. Um. So now I know I know. Um, your dad, like he's a good trad shooter, um, recurve. Uh, I don't know if he does barebow. Does he do barebow? Correct, he does. He shoots. Yeah. Uh, he shoots the barebow, the longbow, the uh, NFAA barebow, which allows the thirty-inch stabilizer, and then he also shoots the NFAA barebow, which is with the large weight on the front. And then most recently, starting to shoot a little bit of the compound barebow when uh, when he's in preparations for when he can't uh, quite get that recurve back anymore. Yeah. He, he's kind of a hard guy to miss because he's always, uh, you know, sh- you know, he's a, such a t- you guys are both so tall and um, and you were really young, at, you know, so your dad usually stood out a lot more. And I remember seeing him come to the BC shoot for many years. So so has it been like a family tradition for you guys to come to that event? Yes. Yeah. So I started shooting archery when I was four and I'm 28 now. Um, okay. And so I, the six years old was my six or seven years old, I believe, was my first BC shoot. And I was shooting um, bare bow with fingers from the the uh the little cub stakes and then kind of progressed all the way up until i was 18 years old shooting within the fingers but with sights and then took a break for college and came back and decided to pick up the release nice now have you had you won that shoot um before as like a young adult or youth or cub yeah every class um age bracket leading up to um this being my first win uh, in the freestyle at the BC shoot, but previously I had won every time in my age group for the freestyle limited or barebow before that. Oh, cool. So was this, was it, did this, uh, when, <clears throat> excuse me, I know, um, I know there's like a lot of important national events and I know you've gone to a lot of state and, um, national events. Uh, do, how does, how does, um, like winning a local shoot like this um, compared to going to or doing well or winning uh, one of those types of events. Are you there? 
Yeah, I'm here. Uh, uh, did I lose you there? Yeah, you did. I, I, you were talking and then you just kind of disappeared. Okay. Um, I, I said, uh, I know you've gone to lots of uh, national uh, and state events. How, how does um, winning and, and performing well at a local shoot like the 1 million BC feel compared to um, all of those other events? Arguably, I treat all my events, whether they're state, local, or national events, as, as the same. I try to shoot just as well as I would or prepare just as much for a state event or uh, a local event or even a national event. But um, considering I really haven't been shooting the freestyle for, for too long, this will hold a special place in my heart for a long time, especially considering how unique this tournament is. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a great event. We've we've seen people come from Oregon and Washington and uh just to come to this event. Um I think the weather is probably kind of a relief. People get to shoot in the nice seventy one degree weather with their hoodies on when you know, just only five minutes away it's over a hundred degrees. Don't gotta brave the uh sometimes hundred and plus one plus temperatures at Reading. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Now, um, you mentioned that you, you like to uh, treat all your events the same way and how do you prepare for them. Um, what, what kind of practice do you uh, put in, um, let's say, on a, on, a, on a week that there isn't a, an event coming up? Like, what does a normal week like, look like for you when you're pract uh, for practice? Uh, in the mornings, uh, pretty much every day or every other day, I'm shooting at nine yards uh, pretty much just shooting at nothing. So some people call that blank bailing. There are dots on what I'm aiming at. And so I do find myself aiming at those. I try to get between 75 and 100 arrows in every day, uh, at least three days a week during the week times. And then my weekend schedule is kind of hard to count because I'll shoot between six and eight hours Saturday and Sundays. And it'll normally be on whatever face the tournament I'm preparing for is coming up. So I'll shoot at orange dots. If I'm looking for a safari tournament at a field face, if I'm practicing for that or feet of faces, if it be, you know, like it was for the uh, national roundup, I just got back from, I was kind of practicing on field faces and feet of faces, kind of preparing myself for both those types of tournaments. Awesome. Um, do you, do you, um, do you, do you change your bows at all like for different types of event like do you have a, a favorite bow for shooting safari or bow for shooting uh you know the world archery uh format so historically yeah so historically i've run three bows one for indoor one for fita type tournaments and one for safari and field um okay. and uh they're they're obviously lower poundage for the indoor tournaments i to kind of shoot between 54 and 56 pounds indoor with a lower let off to kind of keep my holding weight the same, mm -hmm. uh, to, but to get my arrows to tune the way I'd want them to. My feet of bow is pretty much maxed out at 60 pounds and I'm looking to shoot as heavy arrows I possibly can to control that wind drift. And then my field bow, which has got to get out, you know, up, upwards of 120 yards, depending on the event, I'm shooting 58 pounds with a slightly, uh, less heavy arrow, typically a little bit, a little bit, a uh, little bit shorter with a little bit less weight in the point. And those kind of round out the three types of bows that I typically, you know, rotate between. And I have a couple sights. I'm shooting the Shibuya CPX Ultimas and I just got a couple sights. I use the same scope housing for all of them, but just change between a fiber or a dot. 
Okay. So for your field bow is pretty much what you're running for safari as well. Correct. Yes. So so for safari, are you running like a dot or a fiber? I'm running a I'm running an up pin uh, with a fiber uh, four power lens from Feather Vision, the IR Perfectum. Okay. Yeah, that's and a nice lens. Twenty nine millimeter Bowfinger, twenty twenty scope. Okay. Have you have you tried any of the higher power uh, lenses like a six or eight? I I have. Um, I shoot five for, for FIDA and six for indoor. Okay. So I haven't quite gotten the, uh, gotten used to shooting a six or, you know, even higher than that for, for a safari tournament. I find myself getting a little bit nervous, get, getting that fiber inside that orange dot with the, that sort of magnification, depending on the distances. So I kind of, mm-hmm. I kind of want to allow myself to relax a little bit. And so I've historically shot a lower power lens for, field and uh, safari based tournaments yeah you, you you do have to run a you know quite a bit larger dot size or pin size when you're when you have that much magnification yeah i'm not cool enough for that just yet <laughs> yeah no i get you um now i know you know we haven't talked a whole lot um outside of um you know occasional hello and stuff from at different events um I know that you spend a lot of time with the Bomars. Um, and so like, give me, give me kind of a, a brief overview of like, like what Scott and Sheila have done for you. Cause um, you know, you know, in this podcast, Wendell and I, in the past, you know, we've, we've tried to, um, you know, pay respect to some of like what we call the OGs in the sport that, you know, they've, they've done a lot for, for people here locally um, not just locally, but even, you know, on the nationally on a bigger scale. And, and, uh, and I feel like, uh, you know, Scott and Sheila have done a tremendous amount of good in the community. And I know that you've, you've spent a lot of time training with them. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, both, both in form and in equipment. So from the equipment side, I had been shooting historically, uh, Hoyt, uh, Hoyt bows and, um, February 2018, after the Fresno Safari, I find myself uh, really struggling both with my form and with my equipment. And so my dad suggested I talk to Scott and Sheila, who had been longtime family friends of my dad. And obviously, I was a little kid and didn't really know much of what was going on. And so I went up and asked him, I was like, hey, do you think you can help me with my bow? It's just not quite shooting as well as my other one. And at the time, I had two sequential serial numbered Hoyt prevail, same color, same limb, same everything. I couldn't just couldn't figure out quite why one was shooting better than the other. And um, especially considering, you know, I had uh, very, uh, very high respect for Hoyt products. And, you know, uh, I'm, I might find myself shooting a Hoyt again, who knows at this point in time, but uh, we disassembled my bow, took a look at the, at the bearings and, my bow that had been shooting best for me had a set of bearings in it that were still good. And the bow that was not shooting so good for me had a set of bearings that weren't so good. So uh, Scott replaced those bearings in my bow. And that kind of set me down this path of really paying attention to everything about my equipment. So when I made the transition from shooting uh, Hoyt products to now shooting a PSE, uh, there was a lot more that, uh, Scott and Sheila could offer me from the equipment side. So um, partially my bow is, is that because uh, Scott, I know Scott 
has a lot of parts and machined a lot of parts for PSEBOs. So he probably he had more of a stockpile of um, materials at, ready to go for yeah. PSEBOs. Yeah, so like for example, like when I started shooting the Super Focus, they had boxes of Super Focus limbs that I could just you know hand pick whatever, whatever limb deflections I needed to get my uh, my my timing correct and to get the cams where I wanted them to be in terms of being centered within the limbs. And uh, I, from the Hoyt perspective, I had you know the two sets of limbs that were came on my bow and didn't really have a lot of ex- experience with how to get another set. And so I actually went through the same procedure. And Scott made some special components specifically for my Hoyts that you know weren't you weren't available uh, you know from Lancaster or from them. Typically, it was like a custom custom build for me. So when when I went from the Hoyt to the PSE there was just commercially available components that Bomar Archery Products was already producing that were just being applied to to this new platform that I was shooting. Yeah. What what exactly um, did did uh, Scott make for you? Uh, for the Hoyts, I had a I had a special uh, draw stop that replaced the little peg cable stop. I had a replacement cable slide uh, in addition to the actual cable rod was replaced. Uh, I had a set of ceramic bearings inside my um, inside my cams on both on both ends. I had the axles replaced. Uh, I had the the spacers underneath the limb pockets. Mm-hmm. Those were those were replaced with some with some components that Scott had machined specifically for for my risers. Um, and that pretty much wraps up everything that was done equipment wise. To, to just to the bow itself before I, you know, reshot it again for the first time. Okay. Awesome. And um, so, you know, an important part of the whole, this whole uh, conversation is, um, you know, like how, how we get better in archery. And so the equipment side, and like most people know that Scott is, you know, quite the genius uh, when it comes to components and, and, and engineering um how 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 did he help you with the form like what um what sort of things did he have you work on so the i think arguably the biggest thing that scott helped me with was i was completely a push shooter i did not have any pull component to my shot at all and so one of the biggest components that they changed was adding the combination of the push pull together to execute my shot and mm-hmm. also specifically in terms of the release that I was shooting, I had been shooting a, uh, a hinge release completely wrong and I had gone so far down a path in which I was popping them off when I was getting under pressure or a little bit nervous. And so I, they actually uh, strayed me away from the hinge release and I shot buttons not very well for about a year so that I could develop the feelings that was required to, to, to go back to the hinge. And since then I've been shooting a, a hinge ever since. And so that represents the two largest form changes that they made to me, but my draw length was too short. They increased that. The D loop that I was shooting was too short. Um, you know, I, I didn't have enough spacing between my knock and my, between my knock sets, like it was mm-hmm. getting too crammed together. My grip, pretty much I rebuilt myself uh, from the ground up through Scott and Sheila's toolage uh, 
the beginning of COVID, really starting November, December before COVID started, and then really spending an enormous amount of time during COVID traveling up to Tehachapi pretty much every weekend, um, sometimes staying the weekends and then shooting multiple field rounds at Sandy and Gary McCain's house in order to have them watch me, you know, go through this transition. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I've known a lot of people that have benefited greatly from from their instruction. And um, what what do you think the biggest takeaway was? Was it more equipment or was it more of the um, the, the form and, and process. So my mental process that I had beforehand was really not, uh, any good during any stressful situations and not only shooting the outlaws with Scott, but also spending a lot of time with them, developing my mental, my mental game that allows me to perform under pressure was a huge thing for me. Uh, second to that would be the form changes and third would be my equipment my form and my mental game allow me to execute very good shots and my bow because of the equipment and how forgiving it is and how well the bull holds allows me to make small mistakes and not pay large penalties okay what um that that's awesome like i i've shot with scott a bunch um in different outlaws not not as a partner but i've been we've, we've been put on the same target many times. And, um, there, there was a, a few events that I were, I, I had been to where, uh, my, I had a substitute partner and, uh, one particular event, I had a partner who was not very, uh, um, was not really in it for the team. He was just in it for himself. And, um, it was kind of a really bad mix and, uh, got was on the target or Scott was in our group that entire weekend. And, and if it wasn't for Scott, I think I would have like, just like given up and walked off the course. Um, cause so, so he's really like just an awesome dude to shoot with. Yeah. He's been a fantastic partner and a fantastic mentor. And uh, honestly, I owe a lot to where I am today to, to, to them. And, um, there was a lot of hard work that I put in, to, to obviously uh, apply a lot of the concepts and things that they gave to me. But, uh, you know, there's that saying, you don't know what you don't know. And I'm still learning every single day. And I still think there's okay. a lot more to know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been at this game for a long time. I work in the shop full time and you know what, every day you learn something new. Um, and if you're, when, I guess when you're not learning, you're just, you know, then you're not, you've, you're not, you've given up, I guess, I, you know, I, I don't think anybody can know it all ever. Um, now I do know, uh, you know, I've, I've talked to Scott a lot about, the, you know, the arrows and, um, and particularly um, something um, maybe you can explain it a little differently. And I'm sure people will be interested in here um, about, um, you know, arrows and their natural flex plane. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, I know for a fact that you take advantage of 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 his special little tool, and and what 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 that how that works. So, I have a puring fixture uh, that Scott built for me about. Do you, I know your... you're. I'm gonna let me interrupt you real quick. Yeah. Explain to people how how you know arrows are made and why 
an arrow peering tool is even necessary? So depending on the type of carbon shaft you're shooting, um, the, necess- the, the spine the, where people sometimes spine ind- index their arrow isn't necessarily the location in which will provide the arrow the best oscillation. So most of the time when you're aligning your shaft to uh, the particular spine alignment, like if you're spine testing all your arrows, uh, that arrow not doesn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily correlate to an arrow flying correctly out of your bow. There are more metrics uh, that indicate whether or not your bow uh, is going to send that arrow straight. And so this concept came from golf shafts. And so there's a special high dollar machine that some golf professionals utilize that uh, tests, tests each one of the golf shafts and allows them to oscillate perfectly up and down in just a vertical fashion. Whereas uh, typically, if I just take a shaft, uh, let's say the one that has a spine aligned indicator on it, and I put this into my peering fixture, that line does not always correlate to the plane of the carbon shaft in which it's going to oscillate perfectly up and down. Now, people might ask, you know, why does that even matter? Well, it matters on shots that you don't shoot the best. And it also eliminates a lot of the work that's necessary uh, when people go out and they shoot their arrows, you know, group tune wise. So a lot of people talk about group tuning and knock tuning and spending all this time shooting their arrows. And it, for me, my my time that I spend doing the peering on these arrows eliminates uh, a large portion of that. And so uh, it allows me to identify shafts very quickly that are going to end up in the practice dozen because some of them just don't quite line up in terms of what I'd like to see from them. And so that's why you, perhaps if you've ever looked at Scott's arrows, sometimes their labels are flipped around because the arrow actually performed best uh, shooting it with the label uh, backwards or shooting the front for the back and the back to the front. Yeah, I remember Scott telling me that um, basically you end up when you're, you still have to physically shoot the arrow um, through the, you know, when you're bear shafting, but that you, you're only having to test two, two planes instead of, you know, hypothetically 360 degrees. That, that's it. I, I, I pure my shaft. And then I, 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 uh, I, of course, put a mark on it so I can find where that is. And then I uh, make sure that all my, my pin knocks are, my pin knock adapters are all straight on the back of my arrow shafts. Uh, they, Belmar makes a, a knock straightening tool for pin knock adapters. So that makes sure is that all my pin knock adapters are straight. I, uh, indic- I put a knock on my arrows. I always shoot a green G knock that has a black uh, Sharpie. Uh, that fills in the main depression. And so I shoot the shaft with that block uh, up and then I shoot it with it upside down. And then I turn the knock and I indicate on my arrow via dot, whether the arrow needs to be lined down or line up. And Mm -hmm. that, that is the, that is the, that is the extent of what I do to each one of my, each one of my bear shafts. And uh, what kind of arrows are you shooting? Right now, I'm shooting the Black Eagle Revelations. I have a kind of a bit of a interesting setup on those because uh, I wanted 130 grain point, but I didn't want to run the outserts. So I'm running a Carbon Express Nano Pro RZ point, 130 grains out the front. And then on outside the back, 
their first their first run of their overknock pin knock adapters didn't quite come out as straight as I wanted, so I'm actually shooting uh, Easton uh, X10 pin knock adapters out the back of my uh, okay. Revelations with a knock collar. Nice. What um have you have you tried different arrows? Um, uh, experimented <laughs> with different ones and. Yes. Um, so when I first started shooting the freestyle group, I shot the victory VAP arrows, um, did, did not have a lot of success with, with, with that particular arrow. And so much so that I was going to start shooting the X 10 and Scott was like, well, hold on a second here. I was told that the TKO shaft from victory is a very, very good shaft. And, um, while we're still going through this transitional process, don't have to necessarily spend all that money on those dozen shafts. And so I went to the TKO and then after shooting the TKO, when I was getting a little bit better, I started shooting the carbon express nano pro RZ. And then I did a brief stint with the X 10 kind of while I had the RZs and after the TKOs didn't end up ever shooting those in a tournament and then have been shooting the black Eagle revelations pretty much since they came out. Okay. Um, you st- that you're playing around with and and trying to still but that op, that optimal that perfect correct yeah i mean i'm always i'm always curious to see what what is uh what there is available uh I, the the chances of me shooting uh something else besides the revelation for for something like a safari um, probably is unlikely, but in a FIDA based situation or even a field based situation, I would not be surprised if I perhaps was shooting an X10. Yeah, I, I I shoot X10s and I'm a big fan of them. I I have not taken the the level of um, arrow pairing at all with the X10s. I've always seemed to get them to to fly really well for me. They they but, have an inherent ability to perform a little bit better because of their carbon aluminum uh construction um however however i will i will say that um i currently practice with the reigning junior gold limp uh, gold medalist from the from the olympics in the junior category and recurve mm-hmm. and the arrows that he's taking to the youth world championships uh are x10s that i pured oh nice so um, this will be one of the major international competitions that uh, he'll shoot these arrows in. And I know the quality of shooter that he is. And so I'm hoping to get a really good metric on, you know, just how much of an impact perhaps, you know, the peering process or just a well-built arrow can make. Because, you know, obviously uh, a well-built arrow can eliminate a lot of those issues as well. But just being a little bit more stringent in the peering just to see, you know, what the results are going to be. Yeah. Now I wouldn't be doing my job here if I didn't ask, um, you know, tough questions here, but what I want to find out is I know you're putting a lot of effort into the arrow peering and are you of the belief that you're shooting? Like, what do you feel this, this gains you in, in the sport? Um, Cause uh, I, I feel like there's a lot of people out there who, um, only look at the equipment and they're not, they, Wendell and I have run into it a bunch where people just don't practice enough. They don't shoot enough. And yet they spend a lot of money on the equipment and tinkering and messing around with the equipment. And they, they just don't put the, the effort into shooting. Like in my opinion that, that they should for the amount of time that they spend with their equipment. 
when it I comes mean, to I, I, when it comes to this uh, all the training, what what is this getting you? Is this is this is this making up for practice, or is this just making it more forgiving? No, no, it has nothing to do with practice. Uh, the only way that you're really going to get better is is through practice. What this does is one, it gives me peace of mind that the equipment I'm showing up with is a hundred percent, and that everything else that happens is completely on me. Uh, that's component one. Component two is in the forgiveness. And also in in those types of groups that I like to see myself shoot, um, I found that sometimes based on the arrows in my quiver, I would be favoring the same three or four shafts when I before mm-hmm. the peering process. And I'd find myself shooting, you know, arrows 10 through 10 through 14, skipping one of the arrows in a safari tournament. And I'd always shoot those same four. And if those got beat up, and I wasn't shooting those anymore. Sometimes I'd have these arrows that just didn't quite hit behind the pin. I didn't really know why. And I was always very explicit in how I built every single one of these arrows. They always really weighed the same. And, you know, you can get into huge argument about whether or not, you know, an arrow within a couple grains or not, it, it really matters. And so I actually care less about that than other people do. You know, I'm not measuring each one of my arrows and going, oh, this one's 390.1 and this one's 390.4 i gotta you know i gotta shave some glue off somewhere or something to make this make the shaft line up but in terms of the types of impacts i have even on my worst shots what used to happen even when i when i felt like my form was coming around was i'd have some arrows that were creeping out to the 10 ring on some of these safari tournaments and i just didn't really know why and i didn't really think it was that bad of a shot and now from the peering process and some of these other things that I go through, it's at least halved, even maybe even more so than that. Now I'm just outside the dot instead of being, you know, on the edge of the 10 line. Um, it, it's not, it doesn't replace practice. Uh, it doesn't even replace, you know, a good instructor or mentor like I have in Scott. But what it does is it gives me an enormous amount of confidence that the equipment that I'm shooting is going to perform. And that the only job that I have to do is hold it in the middle and execute a good shot every single time. Awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, that's what, that's what I call a, a trick. You know, I, I, I was hoping that you would say that and I kind of knew you would say something like that because I'm just glad you did. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think more people need to hear that. I think, I think, uh, you know, it's, um, there are a lot of variables at play here and, and equipment is, is one of just one of those variables there. Um, so, my question for um, my next question for you is um, where um, tell, tell everybody like, where do you live? So you see, I mentioned, I know you live in Southern California. If you're driving to see Scott and Sheila Bomar, I know um, you, you gotta be living at least in the central Valley or um, somewhere in Southern California. Yeah. So I live in Viterna County. I live in Simi Valley, California. And uh, during the peak of which I was traveling to see Scott and Sheila, I lived in the San Fernando Valley in Woodland Hills. And so it was about an hour and 35 minute drive to an hour and 45 minute drive in the mornings and then roughly about the same back. And now that I live in Simi Valley, it's more about one, one hour, 45 minutes to two hours, depending on the traffic. Okay. On um, what, what is your, are you part of a local club? Um, so in, in, um, in Van Nuys, California, which is about 25 minutes or so from my house was the previous Olympic training center from the, was it 1996 LA Olympics or something like that? Mm-hmm. Don't quote me on that date. And so there's a, just a practice facility that ranges from 10 meters to 90 meters. And so that's my main practice facility. And then there, there's some local clubs in the area, but um, I'm just not members of those 
clubs for one reason or another because I'm not happy with the facilities or um, it just not it's not easy for me to get to or they don't really have much more than what I think I could get out of this uh, this training facility that I'm going to now. Right. Um, so so you so you, uh, so you practice. You have a facility to go to. You blank bill at home when you're unable to get to your range, and then on the weekends you're able to go spend time uh, at Scott and Sheila Bomars. Um, I think, uh, I think in order to do the amount of driving that you're doing, it shows a tremendous amount of dedication. Um, and so, you know, and that, that kind of work should definitely be, um, applauded. Um, cause you don't see very much of that, um, sometimes with, uh, with people that have the expectation to, to win a tournament or even shoot at a higher level. Um, do you have, what are your, what are your goals? Like what's, what's next on the, on the list for you? Um, I'd, I'd like to get my handicap in the outlaws down to a zero. Um, I was pretty pleased with my performance at Reading. I ended up shooting a 15, 20 and ended up in sixth in the amateur class. Uh, I really had a bad third day. Um, if that third day would have gone as the first and second days have gone, which you're going to have a, a relatively bad day. I just felt like I made some mental mistakes that, uh, accommodated for a couple of those extra points. So I'd like to, I'd like to grab a couple points, uh, in, in, in the, in the Reading tournament, hopefully, hopefully win one of those coming up pretty soon. I'll obviously getting the outlaw handicap down to a zero, um, and really start, uh, devoting some some additional time i know it sounds like i put in enough time already but even more time to really working on these small little finite attributes of my shot that still need to be uh refined sometimes i get a little impatient and i need to remind myself to let down and sometimes i've missed some arrows because of that and so those little mistakes make me more upset than some of the big misses that i've had in other tournaments do you, um, I mean, you're in your, you're in your, uh, late twenties here. So I, and I know you said you graduated from college. So I take it you work full time, correct? Correct. Yes. I have a full time job. So how does, how does, um, that play into, or how, like, how do you, how do you, uh, when and you mentioned you practice at home at the, uh, blank bill, um, how, how do you, how does your day job, um, dictate, your practice like do you practice in the mornings the evenings or both uh i try to practice both morning and evening times most of those times would be happening at home uh, unless i have myself a a good a good uh a good week and because my work schedule is pretty flexible and my my uh my company has a policy that for every hour worked over eight hours uh it gets logged in a bank and so I have these things called compensation hours. And so sometimes I'll just take off a half day on Friday, just, you know, whenever I feel like it. And I'll use that as an additional opportunity to just add in a little bit more practice or get up to a tournament a little bit earlier so I can actually shoot it at the actual venue or um, really just uh, not letting uh, my work schedule getting in the way of doing what I really enjoy to do, which is to shoot my bow. I mean, it's not if my girlfriend would let me, I'd probably be shooting till 11 or 12 o'clock at night. But unfortunately she's got to get up earlier than I do. And so that's not really acceptable. <laughs> yeah. You can't, is she is now, is your, is your uh, girlfriend pretty um, accepting of archery? Does she like the fact that you do archery or, or do you think she'd be happier if you, you know, 
um, you know, joined a local cornhole tournament? No, um, she's very supportive and uh, so much so that sometimes our dining room table is literally overtaken with components for building arrows or maybe I have my bow pressed or maybe I have someone else's bow pressed there or, you know, like you think she might get annoyed that the target is directly in front of our barbecue, but that kind of stuff doesn't really bother her. So she's really extremely supportive. And um, sometimes I don't even really give her adequate notice when I'm leaving for a tournament, uh, which I probably should do a better job of, but she's never, she's never really had anything to say except for good luck and bring home some money, hopefully. (laughs) Well, that's good. Definitely don't take that for granted. Um, Now, now where, where you live, um, where did, were any of, did you have any like local shops or businesses that, um, that you, you would patron or you could say really helped you or, um, still support you or you support them? I, I wish, I wish the Los Angeles area does not really have a good bow shop that's within close proximity to me. Um, there, there's a couple turners that are within 45 minutes to an hour, but they don't necessarily carry the higher end target equipment that, you know, I would be interested in purchasing from a local place. Uh, and then there's a high tech archery that's in Fullerton. That's about an hour and 45 minutes drive for me. And during indoor season, especially depending on the weather where I can't shoot 20 yards outdoors without there being any wind, I'll drive out there and I'll spend all, you know, all day shooting at their, at their facility. Um, and then, uh, the bow, the bow shop in, in, uh, in Bakersfield, which is also about an hour and 45 minutes away or two hours. I'll drive out there to shoot some indoor, either for the CBH indoor tournament, or sometimes just because I, you know, free on a Saturday and I don't want to deal with the Turner's, uh, the Turner's crowds. So unfortunately, uh, there isn't really a local shop that I, um, have the opportunity to, you know, provide them any, any, uh, compensation. So I'm, I either, uh, am forced to, uh, go online or I, when I first started shooting freestyle, I was, uh, taking lessons for a gentleman who was good friends with a archery shop in Colorado. And so I was actually ordering a lot of my stuff from there for quite a bit of time. So, so the, so for indoor, since we, since you, when you started that you're, I would say coming back to archery um, was at the beginning of the pandemic, since there hasn't really been any leagues or much in the way of tournament. Um, are you thinking about indoor and like what you're going to do to get ready for indoor um, and there, and actually practice? Is there, is there anywhere near you that you have access to a league? No. Um, uh, so uh, Turner's, sometimes holds a league but normally what happens is my my one of my friends and three o'clock on whatever day it is tuesdays or wednesdays will drive up to 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 turners and we'll shoot you know some mock 300 rounds uh and provide a little compensation behind it to provide a little bit of pressure and then uh in the past i've organized some 20 20 yards sort of like uh, uh, qualification, qualification and elimination matches at our local practice facility that I, that I go to. But other than it, that, it's strictly outdoor, right? That facility. Yeah. Yeah. There's it's outdoor. Um, awesome. What do you, what do you plan to do for indoor? Do you have a, are, are you going to, for your indoor boat, what, what do you, 
when when are you going to get it really up and running is it already up and running and and like what do you plan what kind of stuff are you going to put on it um i'm going to be running a new set of stabilizers that are currently available uh they're um produced by archery republic so that's the stabilizer that i shoot right now but they're going to be having a new bar coming out so that bar is going to go on my new indoor bow and uh the bow that i'm shooting indoor will be my super focus xl ld that i shot last year uh it's already together um it's it's shootable right now the only thing i want to do is i want to get a new set of strings on there which are are done i just have to uh get it get it put on there and get it shot in and then that bow will probably be ready to roll in less than a month and then um i'm supposed to shoot the state 900 round uh and i'll probably try to get my my new feed bow set up so i can have an opportunity to kind of see what it's like in competition with this new setup i'm trying out nice um i'll i'll go ahead and i'll kind of spill the beans a little bit here with you right now on the um, on the podcast here but uh um i was chatting with brian webb a little bit at the bc shoot and so in the past um like i, I organized um an event at the last shop i worked at at pacific archery called it the bay area open and you know um the spot and impact would usually host like an indoor tournament. So um, this year um, myself and Brian are going to try to put a calendar together, you know, starting in October and then, um, you know, uh, going into January or, or I want to say, you know, ending before uh, Lancaster and um, Vegas. And we're going to try to go to different shops and see who would want to participate in maybe doing like, you know, what, uh, a West coast, um, you know, shoot up tour, you know, uh, you know, Vegas style format or Lancaster format type, um, uh, tournaments. So, you know, we'll be trying to travel to Southern California and Northern California and try to be in different places, um, throughout the state. So if you know anybody down there who's, uh, and maybe I'd be interested just have them contact me, but, um, I think this year we're going to be really committed to trying to help everybody, be ready for Vegas. Yeah, actually, um, I shot with Brian Webb for the BC Money team shoot, and I actually asked him about whether or not you guys are going to be running some indoor tournaments up there because I know you guys have run stuff in the past, and because of how um, limited sometimes our tournaments are, our practice facilities are in Southern California, which seems absolutely crazy that Southern California is so limited in terms of how much uh, Northern California has to offer. And sometimes I get a little bit jealous. So, uh, you know, as soon as that calendar is ready and, uh, the, yeah, we're going to, we're going to put that together. Um, and maybe, you know, if there's shops out there listening, um, you know, you know, doing this kind of activity doesn't yield a very high margin or zero margin at all, uh, for the bottom line. Um, you know, this, all of these indoor events that, that, that have taken place at least in California, uh, the, my old shop where I used to work at, um, the spot, um, and impact. And, um, it, they usually, it, these, these, uh, events operate at a, at a, at a net profit of zero. <laughs> so like, you know, that, that this is really goodwill to the community. And, you know, I, I hope that more shops can, out there can think a little bit beyond the bottom line and, you know, help facilitate some of these events and maybe, you know, doing this kind of stuff, you, you, you gain some loyal customers as well. 
that would be absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, I, I'll definitely keep my my ears open for a Southern California based shop that would be willing to. It'd be nice to have one down there because so far, like it's been Fresno and then Redding, um, and then the Bay Area. Um, so, but um, so we're we're about forty five minutes into this. Um, I don't know. I don't know what your what your evening looks like here. I don't want to take up all your time. Um, but um, I did have maybe like one more question here for you. Uh, and um, do you have any aspirations uh, for going pro or what does that kind of look like to you? Cause uh, that's been kind of a, a big topic of conversation um, in some of the previous um, podcasts with other guests. And like, what does that look like for you? What, what is your opinion of, of, of heading in that direction? I, I, I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. Uh, I'd like to see, I'd like to see, you know, that outlaw handicap drop to zero. And I, um, I'd like to, I'd like to get um, another year of USAT and of uh, the national, uh, national events under my belt before I really make a determination for that. But um, it's not out of the question. I'm still, I'm still young enough to, 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 to pursue uh, or at least becoming a, a local pro in that, in that aspect. Um, so it's definitely a possibility. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rule it out. And, uh, depending on how the next, you know, six or eight months or a year goes, that will probably indicate to me whether or not I should be, uh, sticking around in the amateur freestyle class anymore. I think, uh, as, as I'm sure, you know, there becomes, there, it comes a time whether or not you, shoot the number you may want to shoot that uh, that number seems to be good enough to win a lot of the tournaments you're attending and so maybe that's time to have a discussion with yourself on whether or not it's time to take it to the next level and so that's the philosophy that i've taken but i'm not mm-hmm. going to put myself under you know additional stressors on i'm going to do this in six months i'm gonna do it in three months i want to i want to pursue the the usat um, obviously there is no amateur and pro class and uh, you said everyone's shooting the same, but I'm going to be devoting more time to that next year. But, uh, for the national events, I think I'll stick around in the, in the amateur class for the next year. And obviously that means for any, any NFAA based events, that would be the outlaw based events. I'll stick around in there for the next year. And then if I start seeing the trends that I believe and hope occur, if I keep working as hard as I am right now, that, uh, that is definitely a possibility. Yeah. My, my wish um, for the future of our sport um, is to see that decision-making almost taken away from the individual archer. (laughs) The sense that, uh, that we could have a little bit better system that models some of the other shooting sports that have been very successful and are growing where it it's, it's, um, you know, purely the organization there's, we have computers nowadays where scores can be tracked, kept in 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 the in a system, and and the system or the algorithm says a year has passed. You're shooting this average. You you move from C to B. You know the next year you move from you know B to A, and then A to semi pro, and then semi pro to pro. Like it's it's a it like the choice isn't uh, the choice isn't yours. Like I think that in a perfect world that would be. What I'd like to see, but I, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the, the only caveat I place to that is, uh, the, you know, the, the, the A, B and C class system was around for, 
you know, for a while. And the problem was it's just participation. And as archery, target archery specifically, is making more of a resurgence and more people from the hunting community are becoming involved. And you can actually populate, you know, seven or ten people in each one of those brackets, then that really becomes a system that, you know, I could be I could be supportive of, especially adding a a, a class in between uh, the A and the pro class, because I just think that jump is in some cases just it's just too big. Um, yeah. Somet- sometimes people have come up to me and say, man, you're shooting so good. Are you a pro? And it's just like, you know, that's a tough that's a tough thing to answer. What defines what defines a pro? Like, is it is it the scores you're shooting? Is it whether or not you have some sort of sponsorships or exemptions or, or are you shooting for a team? Like, you know, that's a, the, I feel like in professional sports that aren't archery, there's a lot more of a defined uh, metric to measure by as you've alluded to in your previous podcast. And so I think, you know, a lot of good has come from, you bringing up uh, a system like that. And mm-hmm. if that system were to be put in place, I'd be in full support of it. I just worried about the participation in terms of like, for instance, in a national event, if there aren't seven people in your class, you're not eligible for a silver bowl. I mean, right. come on, come on. If you, I want... think, uh, I think in the beginning, like, so I think what's probably happened too, though. Um, I don't know if you've listened to um, the most recent, uh, like Bo Junkie podcast with uh, where Greg talks to Aaron Snyder. And then he, and then I think Greg also went on the Kafaro cast where they talk about the, the lifestyle events versus, uh, you know, uh, competition and how like the, um, the, you know, the total archery challenges are like here locally that whiskey Sierra shoot, you know, draws in thousands of people, um, you know, cause people just want to go have fun people don't want to show up at a tournament and then automatically uh, feel like they're going to be defeated. Um, I kind of feel like the way that our current structure is set up, I think people maybe have that same feeling when you're lumped all into one class from the very beginning, from the get go. Yeah. I got my ass, I got my ass spanked by you and Wendell for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't see it that way. We saw it as these damn kids are getting better with it and we're getting older. So uh, congratulations. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel I, uh, I, I am, uh, I am not going to be counting anything until uh, we get Wendell behind that bow for a little bit more time. I mean, he, he, he did shoot a fifteen twenty one in Reading, So he got me by one there. And I, uh, I've definitely lost my fair share of tournaments to, to both of you and uh so uh, i'm looking forward to the opportunities to there's still and you're probably gonna you know in the very near future be completely beating all of us so you know it's it's uh it's just the it's you know the circle of life you know uh, it's i guess i'm just surprised sometimes after the state target that i that i that uh rubio walked away from all of us on and i rubio is an anomaly he's rubio is a um you know a a uh, trophy white rhinoceros that needs to be taken out of the herd. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Wendell goes, great shooting, man. Great second place. And I was just like, man, I just felt like I really, Rudy Rubio just walked away from us. And he was like, yeah, man, but that's that's just him. And I was like, you know what? You're probably right. I'll, I'm going to walk up there for that second place in pride. Yeah. Rubio, you know, honestly, there's no shame in losing to Rubio. 
you know, he's he's such a nice guy. You know, I mean, he, you know, he, he makes, uh, you know, when the knife is sliding right in between your rib cage, like, you know, you don't even feel it when, when it's Rubio doing it, you know, not at all. And you're almost, you're almost, thank, you're almost thankful. Really? Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. That. Is that a knife? Thank you. That's, that's exactly. Rubio. But, um, awesome, man. Hey, I want to thank you for, um, giving, uh, me your time this evening. Um, is there, is there anything that you'd like to say? Um, I asked you a lot of questions. Um, anything, anything that's on your mind that you feel, you know, you maybe want everyone to, to hear your come out of your mouth instead of just typing it on uh, Facebook or Instagram. No, I just want to, I just want to thank, uh, thank you for having me on for the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. And I hope to see everybody, uh, out on the, on the safari field or feed a course very soon. And, awesome. Uh, let's uh, let's uh, let's have a chat and yeah, we'll see you at the next one. Hopefully, I don't uh, don't come off too crazily insane like sometimes. No. Like sometimes I, I, I was, do. I'm glad, honestly. Like uh, I'm glad that you came on and talked. I I knew that you would explain some of the as, as nice as, of a guy uh, Scott Bomar is. Um, it's very difficult to understand. You know, us normal people to understand him explain things. Um, I had a feeling you'd, you'd have a better way of explaining some of these things. Yeah, I'm uh, sure. I'm, I'm sure when he, I'm sure when he uh, catches winds of this, he's just gonna he's gonna give me a call and he's gonna have to say that you know I you got too, something wrong. I, I too have I too I too have much more to learn, which is true. Yeah, um, there's a lot uh, more. I find myself standing in front and listening to him talk sometimes and be so amazed by the words coming through his mouth. I missed everything he said, and he's got to explain it to me again. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like a two-year-old child when he's talking to me. I'm like, uh, <laughs> all right, that that <laughs> but, doesn't uh, that doesn't go away. No, it doesn't. Well, um, thank you. I, you know, it's funny as I think that this might be the first podcast that I can actually publish where I don't have to click the explicit button. Um, and uh, and so thank you. And um, I will, uh, I'll, I'll see you at the next one, man. Perfect. Thank you very much, Rudy. All right, bud. Have a good night. All right. Bye. Bye.